For us, we're going to turn now to the reading of God's Word. And what we have been doing is ourselves approaching week to week uh, that manger. And Lord willing, Christmas Eve, when we are here together again, we will arrive. But we've been doing it by backing up to it. Um, And so here we have in Luke chapter 2, where we read verses 8 through 12, um, I guess as it were, a, a sequel to this birth, very close on the heels of the coming of our King. Let me remind everybody before we read this that this is God's Word. It is holy. It is inerrant. It's infallible. It's inspired by God. This is God's Word. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Here ends the reading of God's Word. May it be a blessing to His people. We have a sermon series underway that had begun in the first week of January, and again, Lord willing, we take nothing for granted uh, on the last Sunday of this year, which is Christmas Day, then this sermon series will come to a close. The series has been keeping us, uh, or working us through, the Heidelberg Catechism, a teaching tool which has us looking at various points in God's Word very uh, intentionally and precisely. And the end of the calendar year, the end of the Heidelberg Catechism, has us going through the Lord's Prayer, which on Christmas Day, by the way, ends with amen. And that is a very meaningful something. So what I'd like to do is, with uh, the help of the Holy Spirit, uh, converge. And I think it does very beautifully. Both the Lord's Prayer and this announcement given to these shepherds on that night so long ago, Uh, The last Lord's Day, Lord's Day 52, is actually where we are right now. There are three questions and answers, and there are three services for us in the remainder of this year, including this one. So we're just going to do the first question and answer right here, and then Saturday night the next, and Sunday morning the last. So let's contemplate this together. The question asks this, what is the sixth petition? Again, that is within the Lord's Prayer, sixth and final. Answer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Before I continue, just by way of making sure we are really all on the same page, 
when we just prayed the Lord's Prayer and as we have prayed it for years and possibly even centuries past in this church, um, deliver us from evil is how we uh, recite that. And I just want to let you know that it is a fair translation and, pro- and the best, in my opinion, to stop after the word evil. However, it is fair and not wrong um, to also have here evil one, meaning Satan. Now, what does that ask? What is the petition? We continue. That is, in ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh do not cease to attack us. Will you, therefore, uphold and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat but always firmly resist our enemies until we finally obtain the complete victory. That's pretty thick and rich and pretty applicable in our life in which we know what temptation is. We know what trial is. We know that there is evil afoot. We know that there is evil within. We need no convincing of that, I don't think, not a one of us. So how now would this merge with that which is God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, and that is an angel of the Lord being sent to give this announcement regarding the birth of this one? Well, if anybody fails to pray that they would not be led into temptation, that is potentially already a pretty dire state for that person to be in because it either means that that person is pretty confident that if and when temptation comes, they are going to be able to stand on their own strength and according to their own knowledge and life experience, yours, mine, ours together, that of world history is going to let us know that that's a dire position to be in because it can't happen, won't happen. Could be dire because that person who would fail to pray to be kept from temptation thinks that there's no such thing as sin or there's no such thing as God or that God doesn't think there's any such thing as sin or if there is, he doesn't take it very seriously and thus there's really no need to pray that it would be resisted because it doesn't matter if you do and it doesn't matter if you don't and that would be again a very dire place for a person to be in. But we pray this. Why? I would put forward that by the grace of God, he has been so good as to let us know in his love and mercy of how far we have fallen short and how much we should not trust ourselves. Before we go back to the field with the shepherds, another just piece of housekeeping, uh, this word temptation in the New Testament, where it is used, does mean temptation. And I don't want us to get tangled up thinking, wait a minute, God doesn't tempt, James chapter 1, but here we're being told to pray, to ask him not to put us into temptation, insinuating that he does. But the Bible's saying that he doesn't. 
And so finally, at the end of the year, the whole thing falls apart, that which we were waiting for. So we're no longer under obligation to hold the Bible as authoritative, to answer to its author, the Lord God Almighty. The word also very regularly means test in a positive sense. Okay? So I want us to know that as we are told to pray this prayer and as we know our own shortcomings and our sin and as we do then faithfully, hopefully, pray, do not lead me into temptation that is and can be understood as, Lord, please don't lead me into a test that on my own I will fail. And if indeed I am allowed to be tested and all of God's people are biblically, definitely tested, and that goes for all time and that goes for me and that goes for you, they're going to come. He's going to allow some. He's going to put in place some tests for you on purpose. Ones that you do not want. Ones that you would not sign up for. Ones that if you knew they were coming, you would turn and go like Jonah the other way. And in the hold of the ship as far away from him as you could get. Yet he is going to put us through these things. And the prayer continues. Deliver us from evil. I have a tendency to run to it. I have a tendency to want it. Oh, deliver me. I won't be delivering myself. And apart from a deliverer, I'm lost. This is a very potent prayer. And it's no mistake that Jesus would give it to his people for all ages. And it's no mistake that we are praying in Jesus' name. So let's go back to the advent of Jesus with his birth. And I just want to walk through these verses with the understanding that we have been told that we need a Savior. We need to be saved from evil. Verse 8, listen to this. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Same region. Spoiler alert. Bethlehem. Where something else has just happened. It is... Highly likely, or at least a strong argument can be made that if you are a shepherd and you are keeping flocks and you are within shouting distance of Jerusalem, those are likely, or at least a strong argument can be made, that those are sacrificial lambs. The purpose of those lambs ultimately will be to be put on the altar as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. So two things I want us to think about as we proceed into this night with the shepherds. Number one, if any one of the shepherds thought that they themselves didn't need a savior, didn't need to have the relationship between them and their God made right, every bleat that they hear with their ears day or night, every... um, high-pitched bleat of one who is caught in the thorns or the thicket or in a ravine is a reminder that these are here so that the relationship can be addressed, the broken relationship can be addressed. Okay, that's theological, that's kind of deep, that may or may not square with your reality. Mine would be, if I'm a shepherd, it's a job, it's got defined hours, there are things that need to happen during the day and now, during the night, And so I think that there's something to be said for the fact that the shepherd with the calling of shepherd here as the angels appear is simply going about that which they would normally be going about anyway. 
There isn't really anything that they know of special about that night versus any of the other nights before. Their punch list isn't any different than it has been from any other punch list from any other night or season. Bring them out. Feed them. Find some water. Give it to them. Bring them in. Put them in the hold. Stay up so they don't get stolen or eaten. Start over. I don't know if anybody's life in here seems like that sometimes. Box number one, check. Box number two, check. Box number three, check. Box number four, check. Go to bed, wake up. Box number one, check. Box number two, check. Box number three, check. Box number four, go to bed, wake up. Box number one. Could be. In which case, at once, we might have a um, split personality about it. We would love for there to be a disruption. But on the other hand, that's kind of our security blanket. We would hate for there to be a disruption. The beautiful thing is God is going to do God, period. And whatever he does is good, period. And so if there's a disruption, it doesn't matter if we like it or don't. It's good and it's of the Lord. So we want to at least make sure we understand best we can what's going on here. So verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Fair enough. Last week, went into that at length. So we're not going to do that again. I do want to point out, though, in this verse, verse 9, that um, this little phrase here, the angel of the Lord appeared to them. It just means appeared and stood alongside. There's an awful lot of art that goes with this season in which the angels are up in the sky. I'm not saying that they weren't. I'm not saying that they couldn't have been. But likely, they just appeared and are there, standing. Um, as other angels, when they appeared, also just were standing alongside, talking. So let's go to verse 10. As we consider not being led into temptation and being delivered from evil, if we really understand ourselves well, and if we really understand the world we live in well, then this is going to come as exceedingly great news. It isn't the angel trying to trump something up. It isn't the angel trying to gloss something so that it'll at least catch the attention of a few. No, no, no. This is bona fide, legitimate, good news, the best news, one that would render these shepherds' jobs, if these were sacramental lambs, superfluous. That is really Epoch ending and era beginning kind of news. So verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Are you a person? Okay. And this is going to apply potentially then to you. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Why did shepherd number one do the thing that shepherds do as a career? Because it needed to be done over and over and over and over again. And where did shepherd number one learn to do the shepherding thing? Well, probably from his dad, who probably learned it from his dad. All the while, the reminder that there is very much need for there to be some, some mode of salvation. 
even the nightly routine of getting all the sheep in and counting all the sheep and putting your hand on all the sheep and getting them into that fold and then pulling the thorns around the entrance and then staying up at night is a reminder that no, 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 we are in a world that desperately needs saving. Not just because of the carnivores that we need to be aware of and actively participant against allowing them to have their way. There's also prowlers, poachers, sheep thieves. And these are outward evidence of the fallenness of the heart of mankind. That we would do harm to one another. That we would seek to profit at the expense of somebody else's loss. That this would be a strategy. That it's right if you can get away with it. These kinds of things. That's a bit exhausting. Again, I would imagine that shepherd number one hopes to be just tired. Tired at the end of his shift so he can go to sleep and not have to think about this stuff. Because it's too exhausting. It's too tiring. Well, we have a patient God who's allowed this to go on as long as it has, even to this day. But we have a good and merciful God who would make sure that not only is salvation set as his will, accomplished by his power, but known and made known to those who need saving. How does a shepherd hear this good news? Unto you, plural. Yeah, shepherds. You who do not make the headlines. You who are not on the A-list for parties. You who have to do your shopping after the other people have. Because you're just less than. This is a plural, you. These shepherds are likely Jews. We're talking to the Jews. Unto you is born this day. It's a new day. With Jesus, it's a new day. Okay? That goes for today. That goes for tomorrow. In the city of David, how does a shepherd hear this? How does a shepherd in Bethlehem hear this? Oh, they know King David. And they know that King David was born in Bethlehem and grew up in Bethlehem and had a job in Bethlehem before he was the king. Do you know what it was? It was a shepherd. They are reminded of their royalty. Maybe even back to the Garden of Eden in which God set Adam and Eve as regents to rule over all of creation. Dignity is being restored here to those who are bearing God's image. Even if they are the lowly shepherds, the Savior is regal and he is born in the city of David. And now hope is secure. It is not wishful thinking. It isn't a game. It isn't a routine. This matters. You matter. I'm speaking to you, says the Lord effectively. And they can't ignore it. They can't pretend that they're not hearing it. They can't pretend that they're not seeing it. They can't pretend that it doesn't affect their lives personally or all of the lives of all of the Jews or all of the lives of all of the people because the one who now sits at the right hand of God and is coming to judge the living and the dead, I tell you that this affects all of the people. Not only is this one born in the city of David, but here is that glorious word, a Savior, nigh, the Savior. He's born. He's come. He for whom and through whom the world was created has now come into it. And he's going to deal decisively once and for all with this sin that so oppresses None have been able to withstand temptation, beginning with Adam and Eve and onward. None. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God, not with their whole hearts. Here's the Savior. 
He's been born. That means he's a man. And he is going to face temptation. He is going to face the tests. And he is your sole representative. And as it goes for him, so it goes for his people. And if he fails the test, so his people fail. And if he passes the test, if he withstands temptation, so then are all those who are beset by failings, who are beset by yielding to temptation, if they belong to him. As it goes for him, it goes for them. They are seen as righteous in God's eyes. This is a savior. And this is what salvation means. And this is how it is accomplished. And this is in whom God's will will be done. And the message continues. He's Christ, the anointed, the anointed of the Lord. There is no other. There has been no other. There have been kings. They have been anointed. There have been prophets. They have been anointed. This is the Lord's Christ. He has set this one apart for this purpose, to be the Savior. And yes, please know that he is the Lord. Do you know how that word is used elsewhere in the Bible? God. He's come. And he's going to save you. And you didn't earn it. And you couldn't have. And he's not going to yield to temptation. He's not going to fall. He is going to die. What is your relationship then with this one? Because it will define your relationship with God. You are either a son or an enemy. You're either a daughter or an enemy. And it hinges on this one called the Savior. Now, how does that square then with how we live in this day? I think eternally we would have our sights set. And rightly set. To satisfy any thought that we might have a discrepancy amongst God... If in his word, the Bible, we have a discrepancy, meaning there's no way that God will tempt anybody. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is put right into the desert to be tempted, tested. Let me bring back into play something from the Heidelberg we heard a moment ago regarding the sworn enemies that we have in this fallen world from which we desperately need to be saved and that even from ourselves. Our sworn enemies, the devil the world, and our own flesh do not cease to attack us. I'd like to just point out that in Jesus' temptations, and you can read it on your own, Luke chapter 4 again, the flesh, he's hungry. The temptation is to make bread out of stones. He has the authority. He has the power. He can do that. It's just not the will of God, so he mustn't do that. I'd like you and I to put ourselves in his shoes at that time. If this is what temptation looks like, we are hungry and we want something and we can produce it for ourselves, presumably. Do you think that we would resist the temptation? It is as easy as it was for Adam and Eve to reach out and to take. If it is as easy as that and you are as hungry as that, having fasted for 40 days, I imagine that the temptation came every day. On day 10, are you still strong? 11, 12, to resist temptation. It's so easy. It's right there. Take it. You can. And it's true. You can. You're just not supposed to. Day 30, 35, 38, 39, are you strong? Are you going to resist temptation? Does anybody in this room have a temptation, even a besetting one, one that just has the focus of your mind's attention and the temptation is always to act? 
take advantage of the opportunity. It is in your best interest. Do it, do it, do it. And when you do it, then the guilt piles on, of course, but the temptation doesn't go away. None of us have resisted temptation. And we know in real life what temptation or test is like. It's a test of our heart. Whom will we honor above all, ourselves or our God, our maker, our creator, our redeemer, our friend? So Jesus resists temptation in the flesh. And then if you'll recall, or if you don't know it, when you read it, you'll see that he was offered the world. And he turned it down. And then lastly, he was tempted to worship the devil, to obey him, to bow down to him, to belong to him. And by the authority and the power of God's word, he resists this temptation also. And the devil leaves him until an opportune time. And he has now set his course for the cross. The temptation will reach fever pitch in the Garden of Gethsemane, in which he is praying desperately that the cup would pass from him. Luke records that an angel appears to strengthen him, and then he begins to be in agony, and his prayers become like drops of blood on the ground. This is what it looks like to resist temptation, even to the shedding of blood. This is what a Savior will do. A Savior will resist temptation to honor the will of the Father even to the shedding of his own blood. And thus by that blood he is able to save those whom will then belong to him. So hopefully we understand that in this world and the darkness that it regularly provides for us, there is right hope. And in those moments when we cry with Paul, who will save me from this wretched body of death? We understand rightly that we need a savior and here is the savior. There's only one, there's not another. I'd like to finish from 1 Corinthians 10 because we're going into the rest of this day. We sure are. We're going into the rest of this week and into next and then some families come together that that might be the time that they're together and they're looking forward to the rest of the year because that's when they're not together. Other pressures from other places and other temptations, right? You're going to have the opportunity to cut somebody off at the knees. This, I mean, you are. This week, we always have it, but um, I guess some people who might be a little closer to your heart that have probably caused you a little bit more pain, the holidays have a great way of forcing us all together, and now you have the temptation of using your tongue and absolutely obliterating this one, and maybe even doing it publicly. Wouldn't that be fun? Or to know that that one also is fallen and yet bears God's image to whom you belong and you have been forgiven much. What do you do with that temptation? What do you do with all of the temptations? Even though we've prayed, God, don't give me a test that I will fail in. And in failing, give me a savior. We always have Jesus going out of this room, going into this week. We always have Jesus. He won't leave us or forsake us even when we want him to. He's not going to do it. That would bring dishonor on his name. And his name is nothing but honored. We sang it earlier, the name above every name. That's the one who's going with you now and into eternity. So regarding then the tests that we pray we don't get but sometimes do. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, this is verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We have been given the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have been taught to pray. That is something that does take place and ought to take place before temptation. Yes, But do you think that when temptation is on and pressing hard, that that's the time that we should leave off praying? We should have done it earlier, like Peter in that same garden with Jesus, but we failed to do it. Or we should have done it earlier, and we did do it. But then when the moment of truth comes, and the pressure is greater than it has been before, is this when we leave off praying? Or is this the reason God gave us his son to teach us this prayer and to pray in his name that we would not fall into temptation? He's not going to give you more than you can stand up under with his strength. And he's going to put you in situations wherein you need to rely on his strength in Jesus' name. That's your escape, okay? When we're in bad situations, we want out. I get it. When we're fallen in sin and worthy only of damnation, we want to get out of it. I get it. We can call it escape. Or if somebody rescues us, we can call it salvation. And the one who has provided the rescue, we can call Savior. And we do. Pray with me. Father, I ask very humbly that you would allow us who are Christians to know ourselves as saved and that that is past tense and present tense and future tense. I ask also that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, deliver us from evil and that you would use us for those who currently belong to Satan to present the good news of the gospel which is more powerful than the gates of hell to free those who belong to Satan and have them then belong instead exclusively and forever to the risen Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.